This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. The thing is to love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it. And everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands, your throat filled with a silt of it. When grief sits with you, it's tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than for lungs. When grief weights you down like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief. And you think, how can a body withstand this? And then you hold life like a face between your palms. A plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you again. This is a poem by Ellen Bass. And part of me just wants to stop there not muddy what she has so beautifully said. Because at times, life does feel like too much, doesn't it? A bit too much or a lot too much, but just more than we can countenance. You know, and sometimes I, I imagine our ancestors like way back, sitting around a campfire, no cell phones to keep their, their mind off things, no Netflix to distract them. And imagine them sitting maybe for the first time, you know, under that vast open sky, just studded with stars and feeling for that first time the awe of it, the, the great reverence, but also the fear, right? The terror that is the fragility of a human life. Because when we're in the midst of it, it seems so solid, so certain. And I think that's probably a good thing, the way our, our brains are built, the way we are built. Because without the right container with which to hold that fragility, we would just, you know, we would just be undone, I think, all the time. And yet, I think, 
I don't know if all of us, but I think many of us at a certain point mm, kind of penetrate the matrix, right? See a little number shifts. And we realize, oh, it's always changing. Sometimes in really big ways and very obvious ways, and sometimes in almost imperceptible ways. But it really is like walking on water. Or, or like those um, plates, right? Tectonic plates moving slower than the eye can see, but they're moving whole continents. I don't know if you ever, if any of you has read the uh, Saramago, he wrote Blindness. And he has one book is about the Iberian Peninsula. It just, it slowly drifts away from the rest of the continent. It just separates. And then what happens from that? And I think, I think what happens in our lives is that we were born maybe cellularly knowing that we're part of this vast body. And then slowly, slowly, without even noticing, we drift away. And before we know it, we're like off on the other side of the ocean. We think. It seems that way. And so these plates, you know, they're moving so slowly, it's almost imperceptible, but they're carrying a whole continent with it. And I was thinking, you know, one of my teachers said, and I've used this quote before, he said, uh, just as matter cannot move at the speed of light, the self cannot move at the speed of impermanence. So if you think of the self as weighty, and the, the, the stronger that we believe in it, the more weight that it has, then of course it would be hard for it to move at the speed of the way of things, constant change. So that belief, because it's not even the self itself since there is no such thing, the belief weights us down. And you know, and, and we can see this or, or maybe we, we, we don't, but if we stop and reflect about it, I mean, if you, if you just think of your own patterns learned and honed over the years, on the, during the, the class on, on Saturday, I, I, I just, I touched on it. I didn't really go into it. And I, so I returned to it today, you know, just perfectionism, for example, which has been the place where I lived for a long time. And, you know, we all, once you, 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 you cop to it, you know, we, we, we knock it, right? We knock perfectionism. You know, a perfectionist is uptight. They're really not that easy to be around. But you really, I mean, secretly, every perfectionist is proud of being so. And, you know, that's, that's one of those things you know you go to a to a, a job interview and they ask you oh, what's your weakness oh i'm really a perfectionist <laughs> like you really think that is a weakness i i work too hard and you know so secretly we we like being that way or i certainly did you know we get things done we get things done and we do them well 
let's say, by our own standards. And so I didn't want to let go of this trait. I don't want to be half-assed. I don't want to say, well, it's just good enough. Because good enough is not good enough for a perfectionist. And of course, there's not much subtlety in perfectionism, right? I mean, there's only perfect or wrong. And so you miss a lot of life in the in-between areas. Whatever is not admissible in a very, very narrow band. That, that, that acceptable view of yourself, of others, of the world. And what I was saying on, on Saturday is that it's really a kind of arrogance, a very strong kind of arrogance, right? Because it's the assumption that me and other people and things and situations should fit me and my world and my preferences and my opinions and my beliefs. What, when that's not the case, I'm dissatisfied. I judge, I criticize. I mean, if everyone was like me, then things would just be great. I wouldn't have to go around constantly like fixing things, cleaning up things, arranging, complaining, which is really so exhausting. So if everyone would just get on board, then it would, life would be great. And when I think of myself, of course, I didn't go around thinking this, certainly not consciously, but I definitely expected, I still on occasion expect life to just um, fit into my own agenda. Like the weather, I really was annoyed in New York at a certain point. I was done with the cold. <laughs> I was only there for 10 days. And at a certain point, I mean, I, I, I remember noticing just the annoyance coming up. It's not, I mean, you know, who wants to be cold? I and mean, some people like the cold, but it, that's not what I'm talking about. It's there is an underlying assumption. This shouldn't be this way because I'm uncomfortable. And how many of us move through life and how much of our time we spend arranging things so we won't have to feel that annoyance. Of course, perfectionism is also a wonderful defense mechanism. If what you need is to keep everyone at arm's length. And I've spoken about this and I've written about it, you know, my, my own slow dawning realization that as long as I was focusing on getting things done and not on the circumstances and the people who were helping me to get those things done, that then I was always going to be separate from the very people I wanted to be close to from the very people I wanted to love and be loved by. I wanted to be close and I was afraid. 
And so instead, I fell back on what I knew so well, which was performing. By that, I don't, I don't mean acting. I don't mean pretending. I mean, I mean um, doing what had to be done, right, to the best of my ability, fulfilling a role. And not knowing that in doing so, I was constantly booing up, shoring up my sense of me. Because it was when that got threatened that I began to manipulate things. Right, by itself, doing things well, I mean, that's, that's great. I want to do things well. I want to give myself fully to my life and the moments of my life. But it was, it was when what I was doing was feeding that idea of me. That then I was fulfilling, I was performing a role. I mean, just think of going to visit your family. The ultimate web of patterns that is so difficult to extricate ourselves from. The relationship with your mother is such, right? That when he says, you know, have you called Aunt Sylvia for the third time? You flip out. It's not the call. Perhaps it's not about Aunt Sylvia, maybe it is. And you know it's not rational to get so upset. I mean, she's just asking you a question, right? Or is she? Because some part of you know she's not just asking. And there may be years, decades of disapproval behind the question of expectation, resentment, the push and pull of, of power, perhaps abandonment, and who knows what else, right? So that question is not just a question, not for you. I mean, if your mom asks me, did she call Aunt Sylvia? I'm like, no, she didn't. There's no skin off my nose because I don't have that history. And because myself is having its own problems with my mother <laughs> or with anybody, whoever else, But when your button gets pushed, you explode. But really, we say that so easily. My buttons got pushed. What does that mean? Where is that? Where is the button? And what do you need for that to actually happen? Push button, explode. What is that dynamic? And of course, you know, you can look at this psychologically. But really, from a, from, a, from a spiritual perspective, from the perspective of the fundamental nature of things, what is needed in a moment? Have you called Aunt Sally? Right there. What is happening right there? So the self is not only heavy, it's not only weighty, it is sticky. Is I walking around wrapped in Velcro? And then we wonder why we're covered with burrs.
And it is not rational in the usual sense. I remember years ago going to see my family and my person is my aunt. My mother is long dead, so my aunt fills that purpose. My aunt on, my, on the other side of my family though. And my aunt really tries, I mean, she really tries to show how much she loves me. And it usually we just go like this. And it's very painful every time it happens. And so one time I went and I was with my partner at the time. And she said, you know, you know, she's going to give you something and you're going to not like it. And you're going to be really annoyed. And then you're going to be really hurtful to her. So just take a moment to think, what can you do? And I really stopped and I thought about it. And I thought, okay, she's, she's going to give me clothes because it's usually what she does. And they usually have nothing to do with anything that I would like to wear. And I'm going to say, thank you so much. This is so kind of you. This is so thoughtful. And I'm not going to say anything else. I swear to you, 15 minutes later, my aunt comes. She gives me this bright fluorescent pink hoodie. And I lost it. <laughs> I lost it. I didn't say it was ugly or anything like that. But everything I said I was going to do, I did not do. I was like, I'm a monk. At the time, I was a monk. I'm a monk. I don't need so many things. But I just went off on this rant. And my partner is looking at me like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It was, it was like some other part of me that took over the old, that old self, right? Took over. You know, and my aunt, you know, I can see it on her face. So I try to sort of fix things a little bit. And she leaves. And then I'm like, what just happened? Now, at that point, I had been practicing for, you know, 15 years. It wasn't like I knew nothing. It was immediate. Me stepping into me in that dynamic with her. It is so hard to let go of the self, even when we hate it, or even when it hurts, even when we're ready, we think, I don't want to be like this anymore. It is so challenging. And it didn't help, you know, for years, for a very long time, you know, people would say to me, oh, you're so serious. Daido Roshi, my first teacher, he would go up to me and he would pinch my cheek and be like, ah, oh, Vanessa, you're so serious. And, and he was, I could tell that he was amused and he was also sad. I could see that in his face. I could hear it. You know, him, him kind of thinking, you know, if you don't let go of this, you're really going to suffer. And he was right. He was right. And then... <laughs> My response when people said that was, I just felt worse about myself. I just thought, well, now there's something wrong with me, something I need to fix, which of course then just proved, you know, what people were saying. I did take myself too seriously, myself too seriously. And you can't, it doesn't really work to just say, well, just lighten up or just relax. 
it, it really it, it is good enough it's okay just relax it doesn't help right we know this you don't have to try so hard so what does help I think of it in, in, in general terms. Um, in terms of working on, on two levels, at the, at the level of conventional truth, this, the world of form, the everyday world, and then ultimate truth. And so it's working with those protective mechanisms and to begin to shift them, to realize there was a point at which they were extremely helpful. I mean, they got you here. They got you this far. And I, there was, there was a, a teacher, I forget who it was, though my own teacher now, Shugan Roshi, says it often, you know, to, to, have, to have great respect for those patterns in you because they protected you, which is exactly what they were meant to do. So to not criticize them or, or, or fight with them, but to, to, to be in relationship with them, to say, you were so helpful for, for me, to me for so long, you took care of me, and now we need to part ways. Now I need something else. And then to go further and to see that the whole scaffolding, right, the frame on which we hung those patterns is really an illusion. That the ground that they're on is just like sand. And, at the, and the scaffolding itself is like fog. It's not solid in the way that we believe it to be. And so as long as I believe in my meanness and my mother believes in her meanness, calling on Sylvia means more than just calling her. And the moment that I see that I am conditioned, as Buddhism says, that this situation, <laughs> this occurrence, depends on a whole lot of ideas and circumstances and roles and interactions and causes and effects. The moment I begin to, to even get a glimpse, catch a glimpse of that web, and the moment I see that really when I get close, that what there's the most of is space, that's when a crack appears. That's when I begin to see, oh, I have a choice. When my mother says X, I can actually respond in this, in this, in this, in this, in this way. Doesn't feel that way most of the time. And then all of a sudden, when what you're interacting with is more space, then the burrs have nothing to stick to, right? They just fall to the ground. And as I was writing that earlier today, I remember that story in the Vimalakirti Sutra. 
Um, the Malakirti Sutra, for those of you who may not know, is it's a Mahayana Sutra in which Vimalakirti was said to be, he was a lay um, enlightened practitioner who, who was said to be as enlightened as the Buddha, but he's really held up in, in the Mahayana tradition as the, the epitome of a lay practitioner, of a home dweller. And Vimalakirti is sick, he's in his house, and all of this Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and great disciples, they're all packed into his house and they're kind of doing Dharma encounter with him. And there's a, a very pivotal conversation between Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom, and Vimalakirti. They have this whole exchange, and then there's a goddess who apparently also lives in the house. And she, witnessing this exchange, is delighted. And so she manifests this shower of flowers, and they all fall on the bodhisattvas and the great disciples. And when they fall on the bodhisattvas, they just slide off. They fall to the ground. And when they fall on the disciples, they stick. And so then you have a bunch of guys with flowers all over themselves. <laughs> and they are freaking out because one of the rules is to not wear any adornments. And so they're all, you know, trying to shake the flowers off. The goddess, I'm sure, is having a blast <laughs> watching them do this. And then, in fact, she goes up to one of them, Shariputra, the, the fall guy, as my teacher used to call him in the sutras. He's always the one who asks the questions that nobody wants to ask. Shariputra asks the dumb question, and then the Buddha, or in this case, the Mother Kirti, or in this case, the goddess, has a chance to answer. Everybody else then is safe. And the goddess says to Shariputra, why are you shaking off the flowers? And Shariputra says, because they are improper for a great disciple. And the goddess essentially says to him, I'm condensing and paraphrasing, essentially says to him, you are still thinking in terms of proper and improper. The flower doesn't know impropriety. The flower doesn't know bodhisattvas and great disciples deluded or enlightened you're the one who's thinking about it this way and that's why the flowers are sticking to you and he kind of looks and he's like how long have you been here <laughs> why are you so realized and her answer is i've been here as long as you have been in liberation oh so you've been here for quite a while she says well have you been in liberation for quite a while and he doesn't answer. She's like, why don't you answer? Well, because liberation is um, basically immeasurable. I don't think it's the word he uses, but it's, he's like, he's, it's immeasurable. So, so I couldn't use any words. And again, she pushes at him and says, you know, liberation is not about being silent. And then he says, well, listen, liberation, you know, to be free of sensual desire, of adornment, of um, something else. And she's like, no, liberation is liberation within it. Liberation is to be free within desire. And that's when he begins to actually really pay attention to what, he, what she says. Even though later she asks him, well, why don't you turn into a guy? <laughs> that's a whole other dialogue. I'll talk about it some other time. 
But then she says something very interesting to him. She says, those intimidated by fear of the world are in the power of forms, sounds, smells, tastes, and textures. You're afraid of those flowers. Of course, he's not afraid of the flower themselves itself. He's afraid of what the flower means and how the others may see him with all those flowers stuck all over him. Do you understand? It's not so different, right, from any of us. Not different at all. It's not about the flower. It's not about the sweater. It's not about the phone call. You're afraid, and that's why forms and sounds and smells have power over you. Of course, the other side of that is not just, well, don't care. Anything goes, flowers, no flowers. Of course, it doesn't mean that. The other side, which is all sides, is liberation. And really, we should not shortchange ourselves here. I know I've said this before, but I was just speaking about this again with my, my group of noble friends, fellow teachers. I just saw them on uh, Friday, last Friday. And we were talking about liberation and Buddhahood and how we understand it in each of our traditions. They're all Buddhist teachers, but uh, we're all from different schools. And it was a really fascinating conversation. And I, and I said to them, I, I shared with them how many years ago in, in a retreat, I brought up the question, I know Brian was in that retreat. I brought up the question, um, do you think that you can become enlightened? And people were a bit shocked that I even asked it because in Zen, certainly in, the, in, the, in our lineage, in the MRO, it's kind of bad etiquette to talk about enlightenment too much. I mean, certainly not, not good form to say that you want it. And I guess I say why, why? And why, what I remember saying during that retreat is, you know, if you're standing in front of your altar every morning and saying, may I realize myself, I hope you're saying that. And then go and stand on, on a rooftop and yell it over the rooftops. My own view is we should not be shy about it. I mean, it's always the young guys. You know, they come to the monastery. They've just been listening to Alan Watts. They have no problem saying, I'm here to get enlightened. And those of us who were there for a, long, for a longer time would, you know, kind of smile, roll our eyes a little bit. You know, now I'm thinking, more power to you. All of us should feel that entitled, and I mean that in a good way this time, that I can become liberated. I can attain Buddhahood. This is what one of my fellow teachers was saying. She actually, I don't think she stood up, but, but she was like, you know, rah, rah. It's like, that's what I say to all of my students. And then one of the other teachers was like, I wanted to go to your Sangha. <laughs> She was not shy about it. She's in the tradition of Sheng Yen. In fact, I think believe she's doing a retreat at the monastery this weekend. Rebecca Lee. I agree. If we have the chutzpah 
to say all sorts of things. Why not have the husband to say, I want to be free? And then put our actions behind that. As I've said many times before, why just be um, satisfied with being a little calm? I mean, you can just take Xanax for that. You don't need liberation. You don't need to work so hard. <laughs> and yes, it, it, you know, the moment that it becomes a goal, the moment that it becomes a thing, then it becomes a thing. But it's the same thing with the flowers. They're not a thing. That's what the goddess is trying to show Shariputra. It's not a thing. You're turning it into a thing. Don't turn it into a thing. And then you'll be fine. So working on the realm of conventional truth, you work to change those habits. And, and, I've, and I've shared this story with some of you, but I love it so much about a woman who uh, attended an anti-racism workshop and there was a online and there was a PowerPoint presentation that the, the woman running the workshop was doing. And my friend who was attending the workshop notices that the font is different sizes, that there was one key paragraph that was a different size than the others. And my friend starts thinking, God, I mean, she couldn't fix this. I mean, she's doing this really important work with this large group of people. It's really important to look professional. And this just looks like she just didn't care. She was going on and on quite a bit in her mind about this. And the presenter goes through her presentation. And then at the end says, and by the way, I just want to share some, something with you. Could you raise your hand, those of you who noticed that the font is different in my PowerPoint? You know, two thirds of the room raises their hand. She said, I'm a recovering perfectionist. I made a mistake. I created my presentation and I saw that. And I decided to leave it. And not just for me, but to undo the system, patriarchal, largely white, that thrives on my perfectionism. So by leaving it there, I'm not only dismantling my own um, habitual pattern, but also this larger, doing my tiny little part to dismantle this larger noxious system. Exactly. Liberation. Small L, liberation, but still. This is working with conventional truth. And then working in the realm of ultimate truth. It is to realize how through practice, through study, that things are good enough Things are perfect as they are. I don't, they don't need me to make them perfect. That's my idea. That's me turning them into things. And to really work to see the one who's afraid 
of the world and needs to put everything in order. That's what I realized at a certain point for me that my perfectionism and my wanting to be the first and the best was about control on the surface, which did in fact help me to move through a very difficult childhood, uh, teenage years actually, not childhood. It, it, it did uh, save me in many ways, but that afterwards it was me living out of fear. As Master Dogen says that if things, um, that without a, such a resting place, the resting place of me, of first, of best, that without such a resting place, things would not abide. It's Mountains and River Sutra. We think we have to abide. We have to be a certain way because it's safe and it's known. That's understandable. And so I've said before, so much of practice is working with fear. My teacher used to say, trust yourself. Really give yourself permission to be yourself. And I say, stand on your own two feet. Realizing that you're standing on water or you're standing on shifting ground, but stand on your own two feet, not somebody else's. Because the self is not only weighty and sticky, it's also endlessly hungry. It will never be satisfied in the way that we normally try to satisfy it through validation, through sensual pleasure. I mean, it's a hit, right? It's a nice hit and it lasts a moment and then we need the next one. And want is so interesting because it, it doesn't fulfill the self. It fulfills itself. Want is an engine that keeps itself going. And that is why it's, it's, it, it plays such a, a central role in the creation of suffering in Buddhism. And as you know, that doesn't mean don't want anything because that's not reasonable. But how and what and how much? So I think in an oblique way, this is what the past poem is pointing to. Because you, know, you can really think of it as a poem about grief, right? about the loss of a loved one. But I was thinking about it in terms of, in the context of practice, about the loss of that self, of that self that no longer serves us. Of that, solidity that we realize is crumbling like burnt paper in our fingers. And so you know I think so much of the path is really 
first understanding that really the whole thing is not what we thought it was. Because I think sometimes when we come into practice, we think, we think it's going to fix a particular problem. And then we begin to realize the more we get into practice, into training, that there's no problem. It was the way that we were interacting with ourselves and the world. And so I think of it more in terms of stepping into the person, the being, the one that I really am, which cannot be without the rest of you and the rest of everything. And that that is so incredibly liberating because that means I don't have to carry the whole thing. Even though last week we agreed, we said, you know, it's all your responsibility. But it's all of our responsibilities. And so sometimes people ask me, well, how do I do X, Y, or Z? I said, well, I, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I, I, I'll, I'll give a suggestion. But really the question is, what do I need to shift? Especially in those in that very uncomfortable and tricky transition time. You know, when you're no longer satisfied, when you no longer want to be, in a sense, the person that you are, because it's no longer serving you. But you don't know yet how to do it differently. And that's a very uncomfortable time. And so a lot of it is just bearing that discomfort and, and trusting that you will know. Because each of us needs something different. I remember when that book came out, Quiet by Susan Cain, it was really all about introverts. And so all of these introverts were coming out of the woodwork and being like, finally, we're being validated. Like, we're actually okay. We're not, we don't have to be an ex extrovert. It's okay to be who I am. And I'm thinking, well, we need a whole book. We need experiments. We need data to confirm, oh, I'm okay because I like quiet on a Friday night. <laughs> and, and I get it. I get it. I mean, we're social beings. Yes. But we can just go in. We can just turn in and be like, what do I want? This is what satisfies me. Okay. And for somebody else is staying up all night right at the center of the crowd. Great. It's to know yourself, not the self that you think you are, not the self that you were 10 years ago or five years ago or even last month, but now. And so the best authority on you is you. Right? So when, if you work with a teacher, if you work with a therapist, I mean, if they're halfway decent, hopefully they won't tell you what to do. You know, they might just ask you a question. They might point, they might hold up what they see. Because if they do tell you what to do, run the other way as fast as you can and don't look back. Trust yourself. Because the more you can see, the more you can see. And that's always true. 
there's this really wonderful koan. There's not that many koans that are kind of mystical in Zen. But there's, a, there's a really nice koan. It's very long, so I'm not going to say the whole thing. I'm going to shorten it a little bit. But there's a, um, a monk asks uh, Jashan, what is the Dharma body? What is the body of reality, essentially? And Jashan says, the Dharma body has no form. And the monk says, well, what is the Dharma I? And Jashan says, the Dharma I has no scratch. And another teacher is nearby, Dawu, and he hears this and he laughs. And so then when everybody leaves, Jashan is giving a talk. He's the abbot of this big monastery. And so then everybody leaves and he goes to Dawu and says, you know, I heard you laughing. Was my answer not right? And Dawu says, essentially, he says, almost, but not quite. And Jashan says, well, then what do I do? He says, well, why don't you go see, there's another teacher, Chuanzu, and he's a ferryman. So just go talk to him. But don't go dress like that. Just take off your robes. And so Jashan, to give him credit, he actually, he disbands his community, probably thinking, you know, I, I don't have it. Why am I even teaching? He disbands his community. He dis- takes off his robes and he goes off to Watang River. And the moment Changsa sees him coming, <laughs> coming near, he says, so what abbot are you in monastery? Uh, what monastery are you the abbot of? <laughs> and and Jashan, Jashan is so cute. He's like, I'm not the abbot of a monastery. Otherwise, I wouldn't look like this. And Changsu says, well, what do you mean by like this? And Jashan gives him a Zen answer. He says, well, it's not like anything. And Chang says, uh, uh, not quite. And so uh, Jashan begins to ask him something and, and Chang Su takes his oar and knocks him off the boat. He falls into the water and just as he's climbing back up, uh, Chang Su says, well, say something, say something. Jashan opens his mouth, he hits him again. At this point, Jashan becomes enlightened and he makes three vows. I I assume he's back in the book. He makes three vows. And he starts to say something and uh, Tronso interrupts him. And Tronso begins to essentially give him a teaching. And Jashan covers his, his ears and just walks away. Exactly. In Zen, we say, don't put a head, another head on top of your own. Do you really need my approval? And basically he gives him his blessing. Chonzo gives him his blessing and says, well, just just, um, stay away for a while and let your insight mature and then you can teach, which is usually what the teachers will say. And so uh, Jashan thanks him and starts to walk away. And just as he's leaving, Chansu says, hey, Reverend, he calls out to him. And Jashan turns around and Chansu just holds up his oar and says, there is more. And he jumps off the boat and disappears, the koan says, into the mist and waves. And so it's at that moment, just when you're thinking, how can I do this? 
how can anyone do this? Will we ever stop fighting ourselves or each other? It's in that moment when you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, Bas says, no charming smile, no violet eyes, no, no embellishment, no contrivance, no, I'm going to make you feel better. No, you're going to be okay. It's plainer than that. A plain face and you say, yes, I will take you to your life. I will love you again. And if we can do that, then everything else just falls into place. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.